Chapter 3 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollection of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laszlo Beauregard. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum. Chapter 3. In Business for Myself. Mr. Oliver Taylor removed from Danbury to Brooklyn, Long Island, where he kept a grocery store and also had a large comb factory and a comb store in New York. In the fall of 1826, he offered me a situation as a clerk in his Brooklyn store, and I accepted it. I soon became conversant with the routine of my employer's business, and before long he entrusted to me the purchasing of all goods for his store. I bought for cash entirely, going into the lower part of New York City in search of the cheapest market for groceries often attending auctions of teas, sugars, molasses, etc., watching the sales, noting prices and buyers, and frequently combining with other grocers to bid off large lots, which we subsequently divided, giving each of us the quantity wanted at a lower rate than if the goods had passed into other hands, compelling us to pay another profit. Situated as I was, and well treated as I was by my employer, who manifested great interest in me, still I was dissatisfied. A salary was not sufficient for me. My disposition was of that speculative character which refused to be satisfied unless I was engaged in some business where my profits might be enhanced, or at least made to depend on my energy, perseverance, attention to business, tact, and calculation. Accordingly, as I had no opportunity to speculate on my own account, I became uneasy, and, young as I was, I began to talk of setting up for myself, for although I had no capital, several men of means had offered to furnish the money and join me in business. I was in that uneasy, transitory state between boyhood and manhood, when I had unbounded confidence in my own abilities, and yet needed a discreet counselor, adviser, and friend. In the following summer, 1827, I was taken down with the smallpox and was confined to the house for several months. This sickness made a sad inroad upon my means. When I was sufficiently recovered, I started home to recruit, taking passage on board a ship for Norwalk, but the remaining passengers were so frightened at the appearance of my face, which still bore the marks of the disease, that I was obliged to go ashore again, which I did, stopping at Holtz in Fulton Street, going to Norwalk by steamboat next morning, and arriving at Bethel in the afternoon. During my convalescence at my mother's house, I visited my old friends and neighbors and had the opportunity to slightly renew my acquaintance with the attractive tailorist, Cherry Hallett. A month afterwards I returned to Brooklyn, where I gave Mr. Taylor notice of my desire to leave his employment, and I then opened a porterhouse on my own account. In a few months I sold out to good advantage, and accepted a favorable offer to engage as a clerk in a similar establishment, kept by Mr. David Thorpe, 29 Pecklip, New York. It was a great resort for Danbury and Bethel comb-makers and hatters, and I thus had frequent opportunities of seeing and hearing from my fellow townsmen. I lived with Mr. Thorpe's family and was treated kindly. I was often permitted to visit the theater with friends who came to New York, and, as I had considerable taste for the drama, I soon became, in my own opinion, a discriminating critic. Nor did I fail to exhibit my powers to my Connecticut friends who accompanied me to the play. Let me gratefully add that my habits were not bad. Though I sold liquor to others, 
I do not think I ever drank a pint of liquor, wine, or cordials before I was 22 years of age. I always had a Bible, which I frequently read, and I attended church regularly. These habits, so far as they go, are in the right direction, and I am thankful today that they characterized my early youth. However worthy or unworthy may have been my later years, I know that I owe much to the better part of my nature to my youthful regard for Sunday and its institutions, a regard I trust is still strong in my character. In February 1828, I returned to Bethel and opened a retail fruit and confectionery store in a part of my grandfather's carriage house, which was situated on the main street, and which was offered to me rent-free if I would return to my native village and establish some sort of business. This beginning of business on my own account was an eventful era in my life. My total capital was $120, 50 of which I had expended in fitting up the store, and the remaining $70 purchased my stock in trade. I had arranged with fruit dealers whom I knew in New York to receive my orders, and I decided to open my establishment on the first Monday in May, our general training day. It was a red-letter day for me. The village was crowded with people from the surrounding region and the novelty of my little shop attracted attention. Long before noon, I was obliged to call in one of my old schoolmates to assist in waiting upon my numerous customers, and when I closed at night, I had the satisfaction of reckoning up $63 as my day's receipts. Nor, although I had received the entire cost of my goods, less $7, did the stock seem seriously diminished, showing that my profits had been large. I need not say how much more gratified I was with the result of this first day's experiment. The store was a fixed fact. I went to New York and expended all my money in a stock of fancy goods, such as pocketbooks, combs, beads, rings, pocket knives, and a few toys. These, with fruits, nuts, etc., made the business good through the summer, and in the fall I added stewed oysters to the inducements. My grandfather, who was much interested in my success, advised me to take an agency for the sale of lottery tickets, on commission. In those days, the lottery was not deemed objectionable on the score of morality. Very worthy people invested in such schemes without a thought of evil. And then, as now, churches even got up lotteries, with this difference, that then they were called lotteries, and now they go under some other name. While I am very glad that an improved public sentiment denounces the lottery in general, as an illegitimate means of getting money, and while I do not see how any one, especially in or near a New England state, can engage in a lottery without feeling a reproach which no pecuniary return can compensate. Yet I cannot now accuse myself for having been lured into a business which was then sanctioned by good Christian people, who now join me in reprobating enterprises that they once encouraged. But as public sentiment was 40 years ago, I obtained an agency to sell lottery tickets on a commission of 10%, and this business, in connection with my little store, made my profits quite satisfactory. I used to have some curious customers. On one occasion, a young man called on me and selected a pocketbook which pleased him, asking me to give him credit for a few weeks. I told him that if he wanted any article of necessity in my line, I should not object to trust him for a short time. But it struck me that a pocketbook was a decided superfluity for a man who had no money. I therefore declined to trust him as I did not see the necessity for his possessing such an article till he had something to put into it. Later in life I have been credited with the utterance of some sagacious remarks. 
But this, with regard to the pocketbook, trivial as the matter is in itself, seemed to me as deserving of note as any of my ideas which have created more sensation. My store had much to do in giving shape to my future character as well as career, in that it became a favorite resort, the theater of village talk, and the scene of many practical jokes. For any excess of the jocose element in my character, part of the blame must attach to my early surroundings as a village clerk and merchant. In that true resort of village wits and wags, the country store, fun, pure, and simple, will be sure to find the surface. My Bethel store was the scene of many most amusing incidents, in some of which I was an immediate participant, though in many, of course, I was only a listener or spectator. The following scene makes a chapter in the history of Connecticut, as the state was when blue laws were something more than a dead letter. To swear in those days was according to custom, but contrary to law. A person from New York State, whom I will call Crowfoot, who was a frequent visitor at my store, was a man of property, and equally noted for his self-will and his really terrible profanity. One day he was in my little establishment, engaged in conversation, when Nathan Seeley Esquire, one of our village justices of the peace, and a man of strict religious principles, came in, and hearing Crowfoot's profane language, he told him he considered it his duty to fine him one dollar for swearing. Crowfoot responded immediately with an oath that he did not care a damn for the Connecticut Blue Laws. That will make two dollars, said Mr. Seeley. This brought forth another oath. Three dollars, said the sturdy justice. Nothing but oaths were given in reply until Esquire Seeley declared the damage to the Connecticut laws to the amount of fifteen dollars. Crowfoot took out a twenty-dollar bill, handed it to the Justice of the Peace, with an oath. Sixteen dollars, said Mr. Seeley, counting out four dollars to hand to Mr. Crowfoot as his change. Oh, keep it, keep it, said Crowfoot. I don't want any change. I'll damn soon swear out the balance. And so he did, after which he was more circumspect in his conversation, remarking that $20 a day for swearing was about as much as he could stand. On another occasion, a man arrested for assault and battery was to be tried before my grandfather, who was a justice of the peace. A young medical student named Newton volunteered to defend the prisoner. And Mr. Couch, the grand juryman, came to me and said that as the prisoner had engaged a pettifogger, the state ought to have someone to represent its interests and he would give me a dollar to present the case. I accepted the fee and the proposition. The fame of the eminent counsel on both sides drew quite a crowd to hear the case. As for the case itself, it was useless to argue it, for the guilt of the prisoner was established by evidence of half a dozen witnesses. However, Newton was bound to display himself, and so, rising with much dignity, he addressed my grandfather with, May it please the honorable court, etc., proceeding with a mixture of poetry and invective against Couch, the grand juryman whom he assumed to be the vindictive plaintiff in the case. After alluding to him as such for the twentieth time, my grandfather stopped Newton in the midst of his splendid peroration and informed him that Mr. Couch was not the plaintiff in the case. Not the plaintiff in the case. Then may it please your honor, I should like to know who is the plaintiff. 
inquired Newton. He was quietly informed that the state of Connecticut was the plaintiff. Whereupon Newton dropped into his seat as if he had been shot. Thereupon I rose with great confidence, and speaking from my notes, proceeded to show the guilt of the prisoner from the evidence, that there was no discrepancy in the testimony, that none of the witnesses had been impeached, that no defense had been offered, that I was astonished at the audacity of both counsel and prisoner in not pleading guilty at once, and then, soaring aloft on general principles, I began to look about for a safe place to alight when my grandfather interrupted me with, Young man, will you have the kindness to inform the court which side you are pleading for, the plaintiff or the defendant? It was my turn to drop, which I did amid a shout of laughter from every corner of the courtroom. Newton, who had been very downcast, looked up with a broad grin and the two eminent counsel sneaked out of the room in company while the prisoner was bound over to the next county court for trial. I was also happy in believing that my suit with the fair tailoress, Charity Hallett, was duly progressing. Of all the young people with whom I associated in our parties, picnics, and sleigh rides, she stood highest in my estimation and continued to improve upon acquaintance. How I managed one of our sleigh rides is worth narrating. My grandfather would, at any time, let me have a horse and sleigh, always accepting his new sleigh, the finest in the village, and a favorite horse called Arabian. I especially coveted this turnout for one of our parties, knowing that I could eclipse all of my comrades, and so I asked grandfather if I could have Arabian and the new sleigh. Yes, if you have $20 in your pocket was the reply. I immediately showed the money, and putting it back in my pocket, said with a laugh, You see, I have the money. I am much obliged to you. I suppose I can have Arab and the new sleigh. Of course he meant to deny me by making what he thought to be an impossible condition, to wit, that I should hire the team at a good round price, if I had it at all. But I had caught him so suddenly that he was compelled to consent, and Cherry and I had the crack team of the party. There was a young apprentice to the tailoring trade in Bethel whom I will call John Mallet, whose education had been much neglected, and who had been paying his addresses to a certain Lucretia for some six months, with a strong probability of being jilted at last. On a Sunday evening she had declined to take his arm, accepting instead the arm of the next man who offered, and Mallet determined to demand an explanation. He accordingly came to me the Saturday evening following, asking me, when I had closed my store, to write a strong and remonstratory love letter for him. I asked Bill Shepard, who was present, to remain and assist, and, in due time, the joint efforts of Shepard, Mallet, and myself resulted in the following production. I give the letter as an illustrative chapter in real life. In novels, such correspondence is usually presented in elaborate rhetoric with studied elegance of phrase, but the true language of the heart is always nearly the same in all time and in all tongues, and when the blood is up, the writer is far more intent upon the matter than the manner, and aims to be forcible rather than elegant. 
The subjoined letter is certainly not after the manner of Chesterfield, but it is such a letter as a disappointed lover, spurred by the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on, frequently indicts. With a demand from Mallet that we should begin in strong terms, and Shepherd acting as scribe, we concocted the following. Bethel. Date unknown. Miss Lucretia, I write this to ask an explanation of your conduct in giving me the mitten on Sunday night last. If you think, madam, that you can trifle with my affections, and turn me off for every little whippersnapper that you can pick up, you will find yourself considerably mistaken. We read thus far to Mallet, and it met his approval. He said he liked the idea of calling her madam, for he thought it sounded so distant it would hurt her feelings very much. The term little whippersnapper also delighted him. He said he guessed that would make her feel cheap. Shepard and myself were not so sure of its aptitude, since the chap who succeeded in capturing Lucretia, on the occasion alluded to, was a head and shoulders taller than Mallet. However, we did not intimate our thoughts to Mallet, and he desired us to go ahead and give her another dose. You don't know me, madam, if you think you can snap me up in this way. I wish you to understand that I can have the company of girls as much above you as the sun is above the earth, and I won't stand any of your impudent nonsense, no how. This was read and approved. Now, said Mallet, try to touch her feelings. Remind her of the pleasant hours we have spent together. And we continued as follows. My dear Lucretia, when I think of the many pleasant hours we have spent together, of the delightful walks which we have had on moonlit evenings to Fenner's Rocks, Chestnut Ridge, Grassy Plains, Wildcat and Puppy Town, of the strolls which we have taken upon Shelter Rocks, Cedar Hill, the visits we have made to Old Lane, Wolf Pits, Toad Hole, and Plum Trees. Footnote A. When all these things came rushing on my mind, and when, my dear girl, I remember how often you have told me that you loved me better than anyone else, and I assured you my feelings were the same as yours, it almost breaks my heart to think of last Sunday night. Can't you stick in some affected poetry here? said Mallet. Shepard could not recollect any to the point, nor could I, but as the exigency of the case seemed to require it, we concluded to manufacture a verse or two, which we did as follows. Lucretia, dear, what have I done, that you should use me thus and so, to take the arm of Tom Beers's son, and let your dearest true love go? Miserable fate to lose you now, and tear this bleeding heart asunder. Will you forget your tender vow? I can't believe it. No, by thunder. Mallet did not like the word thunder. But being informed that no other word could be substituted without destroying both rhyme and reason, he consented that it should remain, provided that we added two more stanzas of a softer nature, something he said that would make the tears come, if possible. We then ground out the following. Lucretia, dear, do write to Jack, and say with beers you are not smitten, and thus to me in love come back, to give all other boys the mitten. Do this, Lucretia, and till death I'll love you to intense distraction. I'll spend for you my every breath, 
and we will live in satisfaction. Footnote A. These were the euphonious names of localities in the vicinity of Bethel. That will do very well, said Mallet. Now I guess you had better blow her up a little more. We obeyed orders, as follows. It makes me mad to think what a fool I was to give you that finger ring and bosom pin and spend so much time in your company just to be flirted and bamboozled as I was on Sunday night last. If you continue this course of conduct, we shall part forever, and I will thank you to send back that jewelry. I would sooner see it crushed under my feet than worn by a person who abused me as you have done. I shall despise you forever if you don't change your conduct towards me and send me a letter of apology on Monday next. I shall not go to meeting tomorrow night, for I would scorn to sit in the same meeting house with you until I have an explanation of your conduct. If you allow any young man to go home with you tomorrow night, I shall know it, for you will be watched. There, said Mallet, that is pretty strong. Now I guess you had better touch your feelings once more and wind up the letter. We proceeded as follows. My sweet girl, if you only knew the sleepless nights which I have spent during the present week, the torments and sufferings which I endure on your account, if you could but realize that I regard the world as less than nothing without you, I am certain you would pity me. A homely cot and a crust of bread with my adorable Lucretia would be a paradise, where a palace without you would be a Hades. What in thunder is a Hades? inquired Jack. We explained. He considered the figure rather bold, and requested us to close as soon as possible. Now, dearest, in bidding you adieu, I implore you to reflect on our past enjoyments, look forward with pleasure to our future happy meetings, and rely upon your affectionate Jack in storm or calm, in sickness, distress, or want, for all these will be powerless to change my love. I hope to hear from you on Monday next, and, if favorable, I shall be happy to call on you the same evening, when in ecstatic joy we will laugh at the past, hope for the future, and draw consolation from the fact that the course of our true love never did run smooth. This from your disconsolate but still hoping lover and admirer, Jack Mallet. P.S. On reflection, I have concluded to go to meeting tomorrow night. If all is well, hold your pocket handkerchief in your left hand as you stand up to sing with the choir, in which case I shall expect the pleasure of giving you my arm tomorrow night. J.M. The effect of this letter upon Lucretia, I regret to say, was not as favorable as could have been desired or expected. She declined to remove her handkerchief from her right hand, and she returned the ring and bosom pin to her disconsolate admirer, while, not many months after, Mallet's rival led Lucretia to the altar. As for Mallet's agreement to pay Shepherd and myself five pounds of carpet rags and twelve yards of broadcloth lists for our services, Owing to his ill success, we compromised for one half the amount. End of chapter 3